I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Everyone always asks if we're sneaking off at 2am to go and plant, you know, with balaclavas on and torches and like walkie-talkies going like, go, go, go. But there are all these kind of related topics like public nuisance, public endangerment, trespass, vandalism, liability concerns and planning applications and all of that stuff, which you don't need to sow some poppy seeds, really, um, as far as I'm concerned. Today, we're in the dangerous and urgent pursuit of creating change through, you guessed it, gardening. Speaking there was Ellen Miles, a guerrilla gardener, looking at ways to jump through proverbial red tape to create positive change in her local area. And creating change will be the theme that carries us through today's podcast as we dig into solutions to January gardening woes and chat about yearly alterations that go into preserving a world-famous Laburnum Arch. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. But first, I wonder if you'd ever catch this lot in a balaclava. We're heading to RHS Garden Wisley for some seasonal advice from the RHS advisory team. So following on from our previous week's discussion on January advisory topics, I'm joined once again by Becky Mealy and Michaela Freed. Hi, hello. So first up, we've got a question about renovating a garden. Uh, it's got quite a lot of formiums and some pampas grass, and we're looking at how to keep the formiums happy and healthy and tidying them up a bit after the winter and how to potentially remove the pampas grass. So, Michaela, what do you think about that? Well, the formiums, first of all, you need to wear a good pair of gloves, preferably some eye protection as well, and then remove all the dead foliage first and see what's left they are not really good at being cut back. And as they've got long sword-shaped leaves, if you're going to cut some of the leaves, cut them at an angle. They never look very nice when you cut them straight across. Last winter, formiums were frosted very badly, so then you would have to cut them back because all the foliage was killed. I mean, my, so my formium came back, so it literally died right back, so we cut it to the ground and it came up again. 
they can be divided, but you really need something like a bow saw to divide it because they're really hard. And definitely something like a mattock. And watch your backs. You definitely need to have a bath with a radium B afterwards <laughs> because you will be you, you'll be feeling sorry for yourself. And it's worth pointing out, as, as Michaela said, last winter was a bad winter for formiums. We saw lots and lots of photographs and lots of inquiries of formiums that hadn't suffered in the way that they did that winter. So it's not something I would overly worry about in the sense that you're never going to get that most dramatic dieback every year. It's, it's simply because we had a prolonged, very cold period and they can cope with most average winters quite well, just needing a bit of a tidy up. But you're right, Becky, cut them right back if you need to. And nine times out of 10, unless the roots been badly damaged, they'll come back. What about the uh, pampas grass then, Michaela? Can you talk about protection? That's something you're definitely going to need to wear your gloves and long sleeves for. Yeah, gloves and long sleeves for pampas grass because the edges of the pampas grass leaves are razor sharp. And some people get a lot of like allergy rash from it if they mark their arms. And it takes quite a long time to recover from that. It's lots of, lots of little paper cuts, isn't it? It's yeah, horrible. Yeah. And then, really, to get rid of a pampas grass, in the old days, they used to set light to them. But you need a man with a digger, a friendly, friendly person with a digger to dig them totally out. Yeah, if they're very well established, they could be quite large-rooted, couldn't they? But... It cuts up as much of the foliage back as you can and then you can get access to the root a bit easier. You may be able to loosen them depending on the size, but it sounds like these particular ones this member's talking about are pretty well established. So digging out by hand might be a little bit tricky. Oh yeah, it depends on how close their neighbours are because they, they might think about burning them. My granddad set light to his and, yeah, it was a bit, bit, bit smoky and we yeah, had to rush and put it out quite quickly before the fire brigade yeah, came. Definitely so controlled conditions yeah. only and not when there's high winds. <laughs> no. <laughs> We've got a question now uh, about a Mahonia in a large pot facing west direction. It's been in a pot for nearly 30 years, so it's quite an established plant. And it's not been flowering for a while, which is probably not surprising considering the amount of time it's been in the pot. And the member's asking if there's anything they can do to help it recover or whether it's just something that needs to be replaced now. Yeah, I mean, if there's still some greenery there and it's still got some really good main stems, then maybe repotting it and cutting it back hard is the thing to do. I don't normally recommend repotting and then cutting hard because I think sometimes it's just a little bit too mean. But I think in this situation, a bit of a killer cure, the roots are going to be completely root bound and we're going to be going spiraling around. So probably having a good old thin out of the roots, putting it into some fresh compost. I'd go for a John Innes number three, a little bit of added grit, maybe some homemade compost in there just to enrich it. And then with Mahonias, probably maybe cut it back by half, back to the main stems and then see where it comes from, from there. They do respond really well to hard prune. It's one of my favourite things is actually cutting into Mahonia because they've got the nice yellow in the stems. Like It's always a bit of a surprise. But it's always worth trying to rescue a plant. Um, and then if it doesn't succeed and it doesn't look anything great, maybe then in the autumn that would be the time to have a look at a new one. I always think in these situations a little bit of 
tidying and pruning isn't going to do much. So, you know, if, if you're worried about whether it's at the end of its life anyway, what have you got to lose? Give it a harder chop and often you'll find they'll respond. And if you've repotted it at the same time as well, it was going to eventually die anyway. So let's reinvigorate it with a hard prune and some new soil. Okay, we're now going to move on to one that's fairly typical, I have to say, for this time of year where people are worried about frost or they're seeing frost damage that's happened through December or early January. So in this particular case, a member has a, a calistemon or bottle brush that's been hit a bit by the frost. So it's it's gone a bit brown and a bit crispy, particularly around the edges. This particular one's in a border rather than in a container because that can make some difference in terms of how you protect them. Probably about six or seven years old. And is there anything the member can do now, even though it's been browned? And potentially, is there anything they can do in the future to stop it happening again? I think it's, it's tricky because obviously with something that's a, quite a large shrub, actually covering with a little bit of fleece can be a bit of a faff. Then, you know, obviously on a warmer day, you want to take it off. If you get snow on it, they are hardy to a point. So I'd be tempted not to use any protection and then wait until the spring before like pruning back any of the dead. Um, mine got really damaged last year and now you wouldn't know. It's literally completely greened up, flowered again like Topsy. But yeah, it's, it depends on where it is in the garden and how much you want to protect it. But at this point, I think it's, it's damaged. Leave the damage in place, that's your wind protection, and then see what happens in spring. And I had a very similar case with one at home as well. So I, I did actually think I'd lost it last year because, again, we had those really heavier than usual frosts and I did just prune it back quite hard thinking what have I got to lose and it did reshoot from the bottom so it's worth noting that if they have been badly affected it's going to take two or three years to you know really grow back to anything near how it was but I think mine's going to be bushier than it was before so they get leggy a bit after a while don't yeah, they? So. they they do I mean I, I was a bit lazy and forgot to prune mine so I just pruned off what was there and that's why I got the flowers still it was just it was crazy how it came back and it's a good good comment you made about the snow as well because that can be a danger not just the coldness sitting on the foliage but actually sometimes the weight of it yeah can actually sort of cause damage, physical damage, branches to snap as well. So that's the point, not just for calistemons, but anything else in the garden. On that note, I think that's a great place to end. Thanks very much to Becky and Michaela. Thank you. Thanks there to James, Becky and Michaela. If you haven't already noticed, we're really keen to hear more from you about problems you're having in the garden. So do send us your queries at podcasts at rhs.org.uk. When it comes to making positive changes in our green spaces or neighbourhoods, it can help to start small. Add a few bulbs to a lonely planter on your street. Or sow some wildflower seeds in an area that's lacking vegetation. Now, technically, you're not supposed to be growing in these public spaces. But I see this, as well as similar plantings, as a way of turning neglected grey urban areas into vibrant green communities. As multi-award winning garden designer Tony Woods mentioned on the podcast a while back, 
growing visibly within your community provides the opportunity to say, I care about living here. And this sort of growing has a scary name, guerrilla gardening. But really, it can be a beautiful way of taking care of your home environment. So without further ado, here's guerrilla gardening expert Ellen Miles with details on what it looks like to take matters into your own hands. Guerrilla gardening is the grassroots movement of planting in public places. It's a form of collective direct action where communities get together to transform neglected spaces in their neighbourhoods into vibrant pockets of plant life, be that with food or with flowers. You know, it's adding beautiful biodiversity to spaces that were formerly just grey. Every guerrilla gardener will have their own motivation, so whether that is community or environment or privatisation, you can come at it from a perspective of advocating for recommoning, you know, land rights, or you can come at it as a way to support biodiversity or to reduce air pollution, to grow food for your community, to create spaces to educate children and adults in nature, ecotherapy, mental health, community spaces, all of these things are brilliant reasons to get involved in guerrilla gardening. Just to go back a bit, I was never a gardener. Gardening was never part of my childhood. My parents didn't garden. I think I can remember my dad mowing the lawn. And apart from that, it wasn't something I learned from home or at school. You know, you just have the cross sections of cells. You never kind of really learn how to nurture a seed. And that was the way of my life until lockdown in 2020, which is obviously when disparities in access to nature were massively magnified. I am from Hackney originally, I grew up in Hackney, I live in Hackney now. And myself, along with countless thousands of people in my borough, didn't have the park to go to because they closed the local park and we didn't have private gardens to grow in. So I got on a mutual aid group as a way to kind of tackle this injustice as I saw it. I was working at a local council at the time, not Hackney Council, but Ealing Council. And I came to understand how councils work and came to realise that sometimes you need to do things from the ground up. And trying to work with my own council in Hackney, my first port of call when I tried to kind of green up the streets and give people access to nature was to speak to the council, but I kind of just got tossed from one inbox to another <laughs> like a hot potato and didn't really get very far with that. And then, you know, where, where there was any opportunities and any gaps in that kind of chain link fence, it all led to this thorn bush of liability concerns and planning applications and all of that stuff, which you don't need to sow some poppy seeds, really, um, as far as I'm concerned. My guerrilla gardening group, Dream Green, that group that started in lockdown, is truly representative of the diversity of the local community. It's not just a bunch of people from my social bubble. And part of that is due to the way I reached out to people to start with, you know, posting on Nextdoor, posting on local mutual aid groups, putting leaflets out and around kind of public spaces, but also people just walking past and seeing us in action and wanting to get involved. And I think that's one of the really important things to note about guerrilla gardening is that we do it in the middle of the day. <laughs> Everyone always asks if we're sneaking off at 2am to go and plant, you know, with balaclavas on and torches and like, walkie-talkies going like, go, go, go. Uh, and it's just really, it couldn't be further from the truth. I know it's got this warlike etymology to it, like gorilla, but you know, you can call it renegade rewilding, you can call it pavement planting, call it whatever you like. It's essentially just the idea of planting public places and that's such a wholesome thing to do and we want to normalize it. People think gorilla gardening is illegal gardening, but actually it's this gray area, this kind of mire of, depending on what your council permits. It's not been a big enough of a phenomenon for anyone to actually legislate for or against it yet, but there are all these kind of related 
topics like public nuisance, public endangerment, trespass, vandalism. If you're in public places, you're not trespassing. And if you're kind of not permanently altering the structure or anything, you shouldn't be accused of vandalism. And don't block off wheelchair access on paths. Don't create plants that are going to fall apart or fall on anyone's head and you'll be good to go. But basically, it kind of depends the minute on what your council will allow or disallow. And they often don't even know internally what they think. My council said that they were pro us all kind of planting in tree beds because it's actually really good for trees to have ground cover and things around them. And so we went and made loads of gorilla gardens in tree beds. And then a year later, they pulled them all out because there was a miscommunication with the contractor. There's a lack of clarity and a lack of consistency within these organisations and also just from month to month. So I'm part of a campaign called Right to Grow. And this was spearheaded by Incredible Edible. And the campaign is literally for communities to have the right to grow food in unused public land. And that's essentially what guerrilla gardeners are doing. And, and my dream then is to like do myself out of a job, essentially for guerrilla gardening to stop ceasing to mean <laughs> anything because it's so normalized and because it is accepted and widely advocated for and kind of officially legalized and supported. The main patch I'm working on at the moment is this huge raised bed at the top of my road. It's really big and it forms a triangle shape. So the soil in there is good and healthy and it was created by the council, was filled with plants and shrubs and trees and all of these things and then was just left kind of to its own devices in a way that it was just neglected. And Thames Water ploughed through it three times over the last year to get to pipes underneath and they just tore it all up chucked some soil back down and didn't replace any of the plants. So because it's at the top of my road, it's really easy for me to access it. It's easy for me to, you know, it, even though it's 30 seconds away, taking water there still feels like a challenge. So it's really important that your gorilla garden is close. And that's a space I've been working on with a number of friends and kind of allies in the gorilla gardening space over the last year to plant food and flowers and things that will help enrich the soil and bring a bit more colour and joy to that corner that so many people walk past every day. People often ask me, how do you pay for all of this? You know, how do you get pay for all these plants? Gorilla gardening or gardening is painted as this expensive hobby. But the seeds I've been given, the plants I've been given have always either been things shared by members of the community or donated by garden centres who love what we're doing. And so I will slightly be at the whim of what we can get our hands on. But there's always a way to find the right place for things. Gorilla gardening certainly isn't a new thing. It's been dating back to any time, essentially, where land has been taken from the communities. So one really famous example was in the mid-17th century in England. There was a group called the Diggers who wanted to make earth a common treasury for all, they said, so that rich and poor can kind of enjoy its benefits in equal measure because what had been happening since the invasion of William the Conqueror was the enclosure of common lands and the theft of these lands from the population to hands of a minority elite. And they were turning basically into hunting grounds. And these were lands that people used to get their food from, used to graze their livestock on, used to get their firewood from. And so all of their resources to live had been taken away. And that necessitated the need for guerrilla gardening because they didn't have any other option other than kind of like wage labour. It also happens in much more extreme cases of people being kind of deprived of rights. Um, so we see people guerrilla gardening in prisons a lot, where they'll save seeds from meals and start to grow. We also, around the same time as when the diggers were planting, 
the you know uh, British <laughs> aristocracy were colonizing not only our own country but uh, further afield and so you see with the colonization of parts of the African continent and enslaved people being stolen and taken from their lands and their homes a lot of farmers and especially women would braid seeds into their hair and take it with them and then would start growing on the land of their oppressor basically and, and on the land that they were confined to and so we see on plantations and in other kind of places across America where enslaved people were forced to work, they would cultivate these secret gardens of, yes, vegetables and things to eat and sustain themselves, but also as a way to be connected to their homelands and to retain that sense of autonomy and just have some beauty too. So guerrilla gardening has become, in some sense in the popular eye, this kind of this hobby, this kind of thing people do, but from its beginning... And still now, across the world, in many places, guerrilla gardens are people's vital lifeline. Becoming a guerrilla gardener and starting to plant things in my neighbourhood made me feel, for the first time, like I truly belonged there. It's like the phenomenon of, <laughs> I, I say, like when you put your own cushions in your living room, once you start to have a say in what that space looks like, you start to feel like it slightly belongs to you. And gardening made me feel like I finally wasn't like a ghost drifting through my neighborhood, but actually had agency. And I just derived so much joy from speaking to people, from being out there, from planting things, from seeing a bee land on some lavender that we planted. I feel like I've had such bright bursts of joy, even in the chaos of, you know, COVID and beyond, <laughs> seeing the impact that's made in ways that I've never felt before. And I think it's started to make me finally feel like I do, or I'm building a connection to nature, whatever that means. That was Ellen Miles. Ellen is the author of Get Gorilla Gardening, a handbook for planting in public places, as well as Nature is a Human Right, two books that really demonstrate the power plants and gardens have on building community and bringing people together. As always, you can find links to these books in our show notes. And now for our final story of the day, we're approaching change from a slightly different angle. We're journeying to Wales, to the magical gardens of Bodnant. There, we'll be chatting a bit about the work that must be done to prepare their world-famous Laburnum Arch for peak season each spring. It reminds me of Theseus's paradox. You know the story. Over years and years of maintenance, all the original components of King Theseus's ship were replaced. New boards, new sails, etc. So the philosophers asked, was the ship still the same ship if all the component parts were different? It's similar with the Laburnum Arch. It's been there for well over 100 years, but all the trees have been replaced several times. So, is it the same arch? Or is it something that's made new each year? Something to keep in mind as we turn to Lucy Bidgood, a garden manager at Bodnant and a former RHS student, who's here to tell us all about the work that goes into maintaining the arch each winter. Uh, so the first time I saw the Laverna March in full bloom was last summer, so the end of May 2023. And I've seen lots of photos of it and there's paintings and, and lots of media, but nothing beats seeing it in real life. The iconic view of the Laverna March is um, standing at one end of this 55 metre long tunnel of beautiful yellow racemes of flowers. So they're dripping down off the top of the tunnel and um, the sunlight is coming through them and it's glowing and they're really popular to insects as well so there's lots of bees buzzing 
and you can hear them all through the tunnel. There's also an amazing smell. Some people say it smells a bit like coconut, maybe. So that often fills the air as well. So the Laburna March season is our most popular time of year at Bodnan. We get around 50,000 visitors coming in over about a two-week period. So it's quite difficult to predict when the arch will flower. It depends on the weather and how early frosts are and things like that. But generally, it's the last two weeks of May into the first two weeks of June. So peak is probably around that Maybank holiday. So the Laburna March was first dreamt up by Bodmin's Victorian owner, Henry Pochin. He worked with designer Edward Milner in the 1880s and came up with this idea for a spectacular Laburna March. It's built not quite straight, so it's got a curve in it, which makes it feel even longer. And it was originally planted with a different laburnum species to what it is now. So it's gradually been replanted over the years and now is Laburnum cross Waterii vossii. So um, the switching out of the original plants and uh, into the new cultivar continues to this day because the plants don't have a very long life span. I would guess that there aren't many that are older than 60 years old just from the size of the trunk. So the laburnum flower racemes, a lot of people mistake it or think it's related to wisteria. So they're very similar in their kind of shape and the way that they hang down, but they are bright yellow and they look a bit like peas, like pea flowers. Uh, we've propagated from the plants that are in the arch and so we constantly have a stock of plants ready in our nursery. So if any of the older plants are looking more sickly or if there's any bad damage in a storm or perhaps one of the plants just isn't flowering as much as we'd like, we have stock plants ready to swap in. So we'll dig them up, not during flowering time, probably during the winter and replant them. At the moment, one of the main tasks for our team is to undergo the annual winter maintenance of the Laburnum March. So Laburnum flowers on newer wood, so, so it's important that we keep refreshing the, the branches that are laid directly over the arch. So two members of staff at any one time are working on henchman platforms and they uh, have their arms above them in the cold untying all of the branches that have been carefully tied the previous year over the structure of the arch and they remove any dead growth or any diseased growth and then they tie back in healthy shoots uh, creating like an even coverage across the structure of the arch and then they also prune out any bits of branches that are growing in the wrong direction and we make sure that we wash the secateurs in between each tree so that we're not transferring any disease possibly and the result is incredible. It's an immaculate kind of almost looks woven structure with all these perfectly tied reef knots. And I think last count, it takes about 15 balls of string to produce all of these reef knots and about six weeks of work for two people through the winter. I'm really impressed with the dedication of my teammates. Some of them have been doing it for many years and they know each plant individually. Um, an incredible kind of record going back many years of how each plant grows and when they were planted. And yeah, I think combined with the winter work, combined with also having to deadhead after the flowering in the summer, it's quite an undertaking, uh, but I guess it's something that's definitely worth it because of the good month or so of yellow joy that it brings. I think if 
yellow is your thing or you really like laburnum, then using it on a smaller scale in an arch, maybe in your garden, it's definitely worth a go. Seeing so much yellow in one go um, is quite unusual and it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but that kind of glowing yellow in the summer sunshine um, brings a real kind of joy, I think, to lots of people and uh, makes a nice change from the kind of purples of wisteria and, and maybe the pinks of roses that you might often see over archways. Thanks there to Lucy Bidgood. Don't forget, Bodnant is an RHS partner garden, so members get in for free. You can find out full details of the scheme on our website or in our members handbook, which you can access on your phone via the RHS The Garden app. As I mentioned before, Lucy trained in horticulture at the RHS. She was part of our diploma programme. And as it happens, this week is Horticulture Careers Discovery Week. A week full of events and programming around the many routes you can take to pursue horticulture as a career. We've included details in our show notes. Also, if you're interested in getting an RHS diploma in horticultural practice, the deadline is the 1st of February. So get on it. We've added the application link in our show notes as well. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter... Goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.